Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole, and I am excited today to be chatting with Martin Lambrix. Martin, welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Martin is a data journalist, designer, and consultant based in Belgium. He's also the creator of the site Xenographics, a repository of weird but sometimes useful graphs. And actually, we are focusing on overcoming xenographobia as part of our monthly challenge this month. It's October 2020 as we're recording this. Uh, so I thought it's the perfect time to be chatting with Martin. We'll talk more about that. But before we do, Martin, for those who are listening and watching, I'd love to start off by giving folks some context about you. Uh, for those who may be unfamiliar with you and your work, can you tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your path to data visualization, the sort of work that you focus on today? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so um, I'm based in Belgium. I'm a freelance data visualization consultant, um, which means that I help organizations and people communicate their data. And I do that by making charts, making uh, maps, interactive static ones. Um, I also develop data stories, so where I combine the charts and maps I make with text. Um, and so... Uh, on top of that, I'm also give some training here and there about data visualization. Um, I have been developing software to make visualizations, um, so many different things. Um, and I'm a freelancer since the beginning of 2017. Before that, I was working as a data journalist at the Belgian newspaper. Um, so there I was really working as a data journalist, which means that I was trying to find stories in uh, databases and spreadsheets and then tell the stories to our readers um, by making charts and, and, and telling the, those bits of information that were interesting that I found in, in those databases. Um, my path into database, like uh, for many people in the field, was not um, a, a straight path. Uh, it had a lot of turns. So I graduated as a bioengineer in forestry and nature conservation um, already a long time ago. I worked as an engineer um, first in my home country of Belgium. Then I lived in Bolivia, Latin America for two years where I started blogging um, to tell my life there and and the stories Um, I lived there. And then after returning to Belgium, Um, Because I had this blogging experience, I landed um, in the field of journalism and because of my background as an engineer, um, I learned how to manipulate data and also I knew a little bit about mapping, uh, less so about charts, but I started experimenting with data journalism, um, making charts and also making interactive things online um, and that's how I finally ended up at the newspaper. Um, and after that, yeah, I turned freelancer. 
I love this idea of going from blogger to journalist. And you made, mm-hmm. you made that sound like a really easy transition. Was that a straight path or were there turns there, right? Because that sounds like a bit of a jump. <laughs> um, well, before leaving for Latin America, I, I knew nothing about websites. So I basically asked my brother who knew all about it, uh, how does this um, website thing work? So he taught me about HTML and then... Um, and, and Flickr, which was popular at the time, and uh, I made a WordPress site. So that's how I started blogging, and that's how I also came into contact with web development. Um, and then, yeah, while living abroad, I had a lot of time to experiment, uh, learn how things work. Um, I remember that it, that that was also the time I came into contact with the books by Edward Tufte. Um, so, yeah, there the seeds were planted to go into the direction of, um, yeah, building online things with, with uh, data visualization. One of the things I always find so interesting is how people who are in this space, right, visualizing data as, as a main part of what they do, come from so many different paths, right? But the the engineer cross uh, journalism uh, really makes sense for this, right? Because you can take things apart, figure out how they work, put them back together in ways that will hopefully make sense to someone else. So you can see how those skills and those foundations can can come together in interesting ways. Let's talk about xenographics. When did you, when did you get interested in xenographics? And, and was that a term before you made it a term? What is a xenographic? No, it's a term that I made up. Um... I was always interested in in charts that go beyond bars and lines. Um, And so once in a while, I would find some interesting visualization or chart type uh, on Twitter. um, And then it would pass and I would maybe forget about it or um, maybe no one even saw it really. While in reality, it could be something that could be applicable in many uh, other circumstances for many other data sets. um, I also got interested in the scientific side of the visualization field. Um, and there you have many people doing research about um, yeah, how people perceive graphs, but also um, some people doing research about how to visualize very specific data sets, very big data sets or data sets that have some very uh, specific feature. Um, and out of that research also come very interesting visualization techniques, but they have a hard time finding their way to the mainstream. Um, so I wanted to create something where I could collect the interesting visualizations that I saw, but where I also could uh, put those visualization techniques that were coming out of the scientific field. Um, and so what I did was I applied to be a speaker at the OpenVis conference in 2018. And my proposal was to uh, create this repository of weird charts and then um, talk about what I learned in the process of collecting all these weird charts. And to my surprise, um, I was... Um, allowed to be a speaker at OpenVis, which for me was um, very, yeah, this was something major. Um, that also meant that I had to do a lot of work because I had, a, at that time, I hadn't had anything. I still uh, had to start collecting. Um, so it was a big what was job. your What was your runway for that? How much time did you have between getting accepted um, as a speaker and putting the repository together? I, 
think I got the news at the beginning of the year, somewhere in January, and the conference was in May, beginning of May. So I, I had a couple of months. Um, but doing the research was a lot of fun. Um, and obviously, I learned a lot. Um, and then finally speaking about this collection of beer charts was uh, was a lot of fun. And in the process, I also invented some words like the xenographics, uh, xenographobia, um, all come from from this talk that I did in 2018. And how would you how would you define a xenographic? What makes a xenographic? Yeah, that's actually the starting point of my of my talk there uh, in Paris. And you, you can have many definitions, but I think um, a xenographic is a chart type that someone didn't see before or hadn't seen before. Uh, so it's a very subjective thing. What for you is a xenographic might for me be something really familiar. Um, and I don't think there's a strict definition. Sometimes I say a xenographic is what uh, is collected on xeno.graphics on, on the site. Um, but I think it all boils down to chart types that people are not familiar with. Um, I think that's probably the best definition. And when you were starting to build the repository, you know, you mentioned you'd seen some of these novel graph types over time. But where did you look when you were building the, the, the first ones that were there? Um, first source is Twitter. Um, so I follow quite a lot of people um, in, that are doing research on, on visualization. So you, you can see some interesting bits passing by there. Um, I also scanned the, uh, the back catalog of the IEEE VIS conference, uh, which is a scientific conference on visualization. So they um, have a lot of papers each year. Um, so I went through them looking for, uh, I call it hunting for xenographics, and uh, trying to find these interesting um, visualizations. Um, what I also did was um, scanning Wikipedia just by um, doing searches like uh, graph or, or chart or diagram. Um, and there you can also find very um, domain-specific visualizations. For example, um, from people who talk about the composition of soils um, or the um, people who talk about the, the chemistry uh, of water, the, the, the solutions, different kind of solutions that you will find in, in water in, out in nature. And, and they make some very weird looking charts, which makes perfect sense to them. Um, but yeah, and, and sometimes this, these techniques can be translated into other fields as well. Yeah. Um, so I think those were my main sources. And so thinking back to when you were first starting to do this, right? So clearly getting uh, selected as a speaker for OpenViz was a propeller to, to realize the idea. But what caused you to have the idea in the first place? What, what is, what's the benefit to having a repository of strange graphics? Um, I don't really remember what uh, what spiked me. Um, probably just because I saw some interesting techniques um, where I could see the the potential of, but they were very very unknown. Or almost no one, only the the researchers in, that had invented it have used it. Um, so I think maybe not many, but at least some of these xenographics. Um, can have a lot of applications, can be very useful. Um, and so 
uh, I wanted to popularize these kind of xenographics that uh, had a lot of potential. That was definitely one of my um, my motivations to to do it. And you, we've mentioned a couple of times this idea of xenographobia. Why should we why should we work to overcome that fear of strange graphs, or why should we help other people overcome their fear of unusual ways of looking at things? Yeah, I think. Um, both you and I are probably very convinced that uh, scatter plots can be very powerful visualizations to explain something or to yeah, to show correlation between uh, two variables. But to many people, a scatter plot is already um, uh, something very weird that they have trouble understanding with simply because they were not exposed to to scatter plots before. Um, and so I think many other chart types also would benefit if we. Uh, could put them in front of people's eyes and familiarize them with these um, weirder looking charts because they can be very powerful to explain or to highlight some aspects uh, of a certain data set. And so it's all about elevating the graphicacy in our audiences, um, that they um, become more familiar with more chart types than just the ones that you'll find by clicking some buttons in Excel. Um, because there's a lot out there and um, yeah, some of these really have a lot of potential to explain uh, more complex things uh, in data. Yeah. And so this data literacy has been a topic that's talked about regularly in, in, in the world of data visualization, this idea of you know, improving the graphicacy of our audiences. What do you see as the data visualizer's role in doing that? And how can we help push that forward? Yeah, I think I can best explain it um, with some examples from my time working at uh, in the newsroom at the newspaper. Um, so um, I once proposed to put a scatter plot in the newspaper and um, the editors at the newspaper, those are not really data people, um, not really visual literate, so to speak. Their reaction was our readers will not understand. Um, so we cannot really publish this chart because it's too complicated uh, for readers. And of course, that uh, causes a, a catch-22. When uh, the newspaper doesn't publish uh, a scatter plot, people will not become familiar with the scatter plot. So I think our role as um, people working in data visualization is try to show the the, the, the power of these xenographics. Um, and I have seen this on multiple occasions where I suggested to use a, like a weirder looking chart type. And at first, you have to explain it to people, but once they get it, they um, yeah, it's some there's a light switching on, and um, they can also see the benefits of this chart type over more traditional ways of visualizing the same information. So our role is to put these things out there, explain them, and show that they um, can be um, even more powerful than than um, non-xenographics. Well, and even the conversation that ensues from doing that, right? Even if at the end of it 
someone ends up going with something more normal uh, or you know something that feels more common, the looking at data in different ways and different graphical forms can lead us to have other ideas and conversations that can help us understand the scenario and the situation and the data better. I know one thing that I've found for sure is that when people, when you're showing people data that they know, right, it's something that's already familiar with them, that seems to be an easier transition for trying something newer because then you can point yeah. out parts that are familiar. Yeah, and usually they have seen this data already in many forms, many different charts and combinations of charts. Um, and because they're so familiar with it, they have um, the barrier to enter into the xenographic is much lower because they know how the data looks like. Um, so yeah, that's definitely um, something that can help people uh, get more familiar with uh, weird charts, yeah. Uh, we have a question from John asking whether you were successful in getting the scatter plots into the newspaper. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually I was. And um, I think I also put it on my website. This is a scatter plot about the activity, um, the activities of the members of parliament. The, the trick was, so I had data on the uh, number of times each member of parliament had said anything in parliament and data on how many times they had filed documents. So um, the scatterplot was just um, two axes. Um, and then in one corner of the of the scatterplot, you had the lazy members of parliament who weren't talking a lot or weren't filing a lot of documents. So I divided the scatterplot into a, uh, four quadrants, which really helped to tell the story. Um, so you have the very active people over there, the lazy people over there, and people immediately get it. So yeah, we, we ran it in, in the newspaper. And that's another way, right? We talked before about if you use data that's familiar, that can be one way of getting people over the barrier to entry, but doing other thoughtful things in the design to make things intuitive, yeah. to make them easier to understand and talk about, right? So the quadrants are a simple example of doing something to make that easier and make the data more accessible. Yeah, and annotations can help uh, people a lot to understand something, uh, a chart that they haven't seen before. So a little how to read this chart uh, is usually necessary, um, but sometimes sometimes you can avoid these how to read this chart explanation by just um, putting um, annotations there in a very smart way, like saying this side is more, that side is less. Um, yeah. and in that way, um, yeah, it, it, it helps people understand these charts. Well, and then people are learning how to read the chart without recognizing that that's what they're doing, right? Because if I go to a little how to read part, I, I know I'm having to actively think about it and yeah. that feels hard. Whereas if the cues are there and the words are there to make that process easy, that's uh, a more enjoyable experience, I think. Yeah, yeah. People are, are learning. Okay. I'm sorry. People are learning okay. without, without realizing they're learning. Yes. So that's always best. And even can be looking at something new without necessarily realizing that because they're able to either read or look into individual points that help them understand the broader construct. Mm -hmm. Do you have other tips for helping people embrace graphs that are foreign to them? Um, I would say not be afraid of them. And uh, that's the first hurdle um, that many people yeah, they see something unfamiliar and they simply run away. 
Um, so it's just a matter of investing a little time because in the end, it, it always uh, boils down to the return on investment. If you spend some time with a chart that you haven't seen before and then suddenly it snaps, then uh, you get a return of the uh, investment you made with your attention. Um, and so the first thing would be an open mindset towards weirder looking charts or more complex <laughs> charts and just take some time to spend with it. Um, and, and, and then you'll notice that, um, yeah, after a while it just snaps and it all makes sense. And you have this kind of enlightenment um, and that's very valuable, I think. So not being afraid is a first step. Yeah. And then trying to uh, instill that sort of lack of fear in audiences as well, right? How, how has your repository of strange graphs grown since 2018? And, and how do you bring new ones in? Are you scouting for them? Are people suggesting them? Um, I, um, in my talk, I also have this matrix where you um, have um, many different things that data can have, like uh, data can have a geographical component, data can have a time dimension. And when you cross those things, like for example, time and a map, then you get something that can be yeah, quite weird to look at. Yeah, these um, like strange mashups, right? Yeah. And so um, there are still a lot of blanks on this map. Um, so I have things like hierarchy. Um, I have things like uncertainty in this matrix because you have all, all kinds of different techniques to show hierarchy or to show uncertainty, but how do you show uncertainty within a hierarchy? Um, yeah. And so some of the cells in the matrix are filled. So there are some interesting techniques there, but there are a lot of blanks still. Um, so when whenever there are blanks, um, it's just a matter of Googling, um, visualizing hierarchy with uncertainty. And then sometimes you end up with, uh, with some interesting techniques. Um, but I have to admit, after OpenVis, I haven't um, added many more xenographics to the site. Um, people can submit xenographics to the site. So I mm -hmm. put some of the submissions online. Um, and just before uh, this recording, I counted them. So there are now 85 um, mm -hmm. in the repository. It's quite a repository. Um, but I have some... Um, some tweets that I faffed that I still need to check and add to them, uh, to, to the repository. I haven't yeah. been very active there. Um, to, yeah, it's a bit um, of a pity, um, but I, I, I was basically too busy uh, lately. Sure. Um, but when things get quieter, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to add uh, many more examples. Well, and I'm curious as well, right? When you have this matrix and you find the empty cell, you do some Google searching, but if you still don't find anything, does that make you want to keep searching or does it make you want to make something that will fill that cell? Ooh, that would be challenging. Yeah. Um, but yeah, interesting idea. We have a question from Jennifer asking what common types of tools people are using when they are building the xenographics that you find. Um, because they are so specific, um, most of those visuals are produced um, by writing code, um, either JavaScript D3 or maybe Python. Um, so 
yeah, almost all of them are um, made by coding. Um, but then after people see the, the value of some of these, they can become more popular. And then you have tools that um, um, have these kind of visuals built in. Um, so, for example, you have Raw Graphs, um, which is a free online tool. There you can make many visualizations that were xenographics up until a couple of years back. And, and now you can make them without having to write code. Um, so, yeah, Raw Graphs is, I think, the tool that is deliberately trying to fill a hole um, of making charts that you cannot make with other tools uh, without having to write code. So um, I think, yeah, it deserves a highlight when we are uh, talking about xenographics. And I'll make sure, as we, as you mentioned, some of these resources that we're providing links to all of these in the show notes. One thing is I was exploring the xenographic site. I came across an article that you'd written about the importance of having consistent nomenclature when it comes to our graphs. I think one of the examples you talked about where that's not the case is, you know, some people might call it a Mary Mako, other people might call it a Mako chart, or it could be a variable with bar chart. Why is it important that we have consistent words to describe graphs? Mm -hmm. So visualization is a relatively new field, um, and so the the body of knowledge is not yet very well established. And um, when you um, have this problem of one thing having multiple names, that means that, especially online, the knowledge about the chart type is siloed into different parts. So. Um, if you're interested in making this Marimeko chart or Meko or some call it a mosaic plot, um, when you Google for mosaic plot, you miss all the information available about the Marimeko chart, which is the same chart, but uh, just with a different name. Um, so in that respect, I think it's important to have an, an established vocabulary um, that people can refer to when they talk about a certain chart type. Um, otherwise, the, the knowledge about this chart um, is just split up and um, much harder to find for people. I'm curious. So, you know, you mentioned that you've not uh, been as actively updating the xenographic site, but I'm sure you still have an eye out towards uh, when you're seeing things that are novel or new or experimental. Do you have a sense of how things are heading or progressing when it comes to that? Are, are people more innovative than they were when you started the site? Or is that something that waxes and wanes over time? What, what drives uh, experiments in this area? Yeah, I think we need to admit that it's still very niche. Um, it's um, mostly people already um, quite active in the field of data visualization that are interested in, in even weirder looking charts. Um, but you have some spillover. Um, I know of some examples of people who made some of these scenographics be because I saw it on the site. So it's definitely a source of inspiration. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, we cannot say that they all spill down to the mainstream, um, which of course is, is fine because a lot of them are also designed for very specific use cases, for very specific data sets. So um, it's inherently that they they will stay niche. Um, but I think just by 
um, having this word of xenographics, um, mm-hmm. we are discussing it now. So um, I think that's also very valuable. Um, just to explain that there might be uh, weird looking charts out there, um, but some of them can be really powerful. And we shouldn't um, forget that in in the time of William Playfair, the inventor of the bar chart, the line chart, and the pie chart, the, these charts were xenographics to anyone uh, because no one had ever seen something like that. Um, and William Playfair managed to show the power of this new technique of visualization. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think we we should learn a little bit from from William Playfair and, and try to put these weird looking char- charts out there. But yeah, I, I think many of them will uh, remain in a, in a niche area in visualization. But even then, it's such a good lesson, right? That from every graph we see, there's probably something to be learned from it, even if it's the aspects of it that might not work for a scenario that we're faced with. But just by being open and not just pushing aside a graph because it looks stranger than the ones that we're used to seeing, but taking some time to sit with it and understand why it was done the way it was, what some of the design considerations were, when it might work, or when aspects of that might work. There's a ton to be learned from that sort of reflection. Yeah. And, and for example, the, the, the bigger newsrooms like the New York Times and the Washington Post, they're not afraid of um, coming up with new kinds of visualizations. Uh, they, they produce xenographics themselves. Um, if, if they work, they, they put them out there. And um, yeah, so it definitely can work that way too. Yeah, you uh, was looking at your lists of lists as well, the annual repositories of different lists related to data visualization was noticing, I hadn't seen before that 538 annually, it looks like, publishes a a post of their weirdest graphs of Mm -hmm. the year, Um, which so it's, yeah, good to see media outlets trying new things. Yeah, and a lot of these are like standard visualization, but with a twist where they, they go against some convention um, and they uh, always have a reason for that Um, and and yeah when when they do it 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 just works so yeah they're doing a great job of popularizing these weird charts yeah Uh, anchor on twitter actually had a related question to that wondering whether you have a favorite unconventional viz of 2020 yeah if it's 2020 of course, uh, we need to talk about log scales and, uh, and the pandemic. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of people previously were not really exposed to a logarithmic scales on charts. And, and today, we're om- almost all of us are quite familiar now um, with logarithmic scales. And there was one interesting example I saw, and it, it actually is um, a connected scatter plot with a double, double logarithmic scale. So you have number of cases on one axis and number of uh, deaths on, on the other axis. And um, because you have a delay between the number of cases and the number of deaths, the, the connected scatter plot is actually making a loop. You have a rising uh, number of cases, then that start to rise again. And then if the, the peak is um, passed, the number of cases goes down. So the connected spot, scatter plot goes to the other side. And then with the delay, the deaths also start to uh, diminish. So yeah, for that was 
something um, yeah very interesting to see for me the double log scale and it actually works for this kind of data um, and then yeah connected scatter plot is one of those kind of visualizations that are between mainstream and between xenographics um, they're not too complex to read but they're also not very very popular or very popular yet they also they do not work in all use cases but in this case it, it worked really well so just closing out on xenographobia, though, and xenographics, so we can talk about this more. I do encourage anyone who's watching or listening live to check out the current monthly storytelling with data challenge, uh, where you can either browse xenographics that others have made or contribute by making one of your own. It doesn't have to be crazy, just something that's new to you. Uh, so you can figure out what you learned through that process. But I'd love to shift gears now. And Martin, you, you mentioned you're a freelancer, right, and have been for several years now. And I know that we have a lot of people listening who either might be out on their own or might be thinking about going out on their own or who may be in consultative sort of roles within their organization. So I'm curious to talk a bit more about your experience as a consultant and yeah, sure. you know, how you find the projects that you work on, how you find the clients you work with. Um, and then one thing I was really curious about specifically in looking through your site and your work is there's definitely, you can tell there are, there are a lot of passion driven projects, right? Because they're very specific, um, topics that you dive into. So I'm curious about your mix between starting out with something that's interesting that you dive into and then try to pitch to be used elsewhere versus uh, being contracted by clients to develop something specific. And yeah, lots of questions there. And I just asked you like five questions, which is not the thing to do when you're trying to interview someone. So pick and choose from there. Okay. About pitching and, and, and doing passion projects or just yeah. doing what the client asks you. Um, pitching in journalism is, of course, something... Um, that's been done a lot. Um, so it's natural for journalists to pitch a story. Um, and so that's, for example, what I did for the pudding. I um, made a visual essay on the, um, yeah, how EU money is distributed among the European Union's regions. Um, so quite, yeah, boring topic, you might say. Um, but um, yeah, there were some interesting things in the data. So I pitched it to the pudding and they liked it. So I worked with them um, to make that story, uh, which was a nice experience, um, but usually it doesn't work like that. Um, there are not many organizations who accept pitches for data journalism or for visualization. Um, so what might happen is that you did some hobby project um, and then you come into contact with some media or, or an, another organization that is working around the same topic. Uh, and then you can say, well, um, I made this, maybe that's interesting for your project as well. And then you might sell it. And that happened once uh, with me, which was just awesome. So I just basically made something out of my own interest. And then I was later able to, to sell it. That, that, was, uh, that was really nice. Um, but most of my projects are clients approaching me and asking me um, to help them um, either with improving the visuals they are making uh, at that point, or maybe they don't really have an idea what I want, or 
they have an idea but don't have the technical capacity to do it. Um, so it's usually um, clients that approach me, then, then it's the other way around. And how do they find you? Is it through your other work typically? Um, when I started out, I thought it was very important to have a good website with a good portfolio. Um, and that actually is important, but for other reasons than, than I thought. Um, most clients come to me by word of mouth um, of uh, people knowing me who uh, recommend me to people who need some kind of data visualization service. Um, but then, of course, those people, they want to check me out. So they end up on my website to, to check out my, my portfolio. So it, it's actually important to, to have that, that uh, you can give potential um, interested people um, the confidence that they are dealing with someone who has already made a lot of things. Um, but it's also very important to have this network. Um, so people recommending me, dropping my name, um, I have noticed that this is uh, where a lot of my clients come from. And when you add work to your portfolio online, do you add everything that you can or are you curating from things that you've done? What's the thought process that goes in, into the, your online portfolio? And the portfolio is usually the bigger projects um, that I think uh, look nice, work really well. Um, but I also have a lot of things I made that I'm not allowed to share. Sure. Um, so a lot of my work stays behind non-disclosure agreements, unfortunately. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's the bigger things that I like the most. And also it's kind of important to also share in your portfolio the kind of things that you enjoy making. Yes. And that people don't approach you for some projects that you are actually not interested in doing. Right. I'm guessing from the work I explored that you don't get a lot of people coming to you and saying, you know, will you take my static report and redesign that, right? That it's a different mm. sort of, no? No, that, that happens too, because uh, what I'm noticing now is that a lot of organizations are true with publishing big paper reports and they now want to go online. And online, you can uh, have yeah. things moving around, interactivity. Um, so that's a, a kind of a new market that I see that is uh, emerging, that bigger organizations want to also make um, online native experiences from their reports, which in a lot of cases involve database and, and user experience and interactivity. So that happens too. And what's your balance between static visuals and interactive? Do you focus more on the interactive pieces? Um, my, yeah, I, what I make is usually online. Um, yeah. So I, um, I'm not very comfortable designing things for print um, because I'm not a designer. I'm not a layouter. My um, Adobe Illustrator skills are quite limited. Um, so... Um, a lot of what I make is, is online, um, but it doesn't have your, to be. What are your go-to tools when you're uh, working online? Um, when clients send me data, the first thing I do is I open R um, to get a sense of the data, um, to clean it and to reshape it. So um, my data cleaning tool is R. Um, I... 
I love how I can write re reproducible scripts. So when clients send me a new data sets or they find some errors, they send me a new data set, I can just rerun the script and, and I have my clean data again. Um, and then ggplot, the, the package for R to make charts, is um, my second go-to. Um, that's how I explore data visually. And in a lot of cases, I can also make sketches that, that I can send to clients. So those are the first thing that I produce, um, or usually ggplots. Um, and then if it needs to be interactive or when it needs to be more custom, then I move to uh, JavaScript and D3. Um, so that's what I use to make interactive charts. And when you're starting to work with a new client or when you're in that exploration phase, how do you figure out whether it's going to be a good fit? Are there questions that you're asking or ways that you're assessing the project to try to figure out both whether you're going to be able to give the client what they want, but also whether it's going to be something that you want to work on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those first um, initial talks are quite important to um, align expectations, um, also to get a sense of where the data comes from and how how clean it is, because that's, that's where you can spend a lot of time on uh, in a project, uh, getting a sense of the data. Um, also, sometimes I get requests for what is usually called infographics, and this usually involves some kind of illustration or illustration and mix with data visualization. I cannot draw, so um, that's something that I make clear um, very much upfront. Um, for me, it starts with the data or I can put anything on screen or on paper. Um, I, I do data visualization, I'm, I'm not an illustrator. Um, and yeah, trying to figure out who are the people that are going to see the end product? Who is the target audience? Uh, is very important because that will answer uh, already a lot of questions for you. Um, yeah, I think those are the, the first things that I discuss with clients. And do you, do you end up turning down many clients or realizing it's not a fit? Um, not so many, actually. Um, sometimes it happens that when I make a proposal, client says, well, no, that's not really uh, what we need or it's too expensive for, uh, sure. for other reasons. But um, mostly it's the clients that expect me to do some illustration kind of work that, uh, that are not a good fit. But um, apart from that, um, mostly I, uh, after an initial talk, um, we can start. Uh, getting into the project. And another question from Jennifer, who's wondering if you're always working solo or whether you have partners or others who you work with to bring in additional skill sets to a project. Usually I work alone, um, but one of my biggest projects up until now, I, um, I was in need of someone who could develop a backend for, for um, um, for a platform, and so that was a nice occasion to work with my brother, who is also a programmer, yeah. but more on the backend side. So we did that together for the first time, which was a really nice experience. Um, for some other projects, I'm working in a small team, 
Um, so we divide the work and we can help each other out, which is also nice to be able to do that. What sort of other yeah. skill sets are you typically bringing in when you're working in a team? Uh, so backend stuff, because that's not something I do. And then design skills um, are sometimes um, the thing I need because I don't have a design background. And I notice when I bring in someone who can do design, the, the end result is a lot better. Um, mm. So those are the, the main areas. What about, so marrying the client piece with the xenographic piece, do you, how often do you engage in conversations where you're trying to convince the client that they might want something or should maybe want something that's a little bit stranger or not your off the shelf sort of data visualization? Yeah, I only do that when I know that there's um, something to gain with these xenographics, um, yep. that there's more power in the xenographic than in the traditional way of doing things. Um, so that doesn't happen a lot, um, but sometimes it does. And um, then it's just a matter of um, getting that that enlightenment in, into people's minds that they can uh, look at it and see that it's actually more powerful uh, or working more efficiently for the mm -hmm. data than, than what they are used to seeing. Um, that that is all. That is something that I strive for, but uh, it doesn't happen uh, a lot. And when when it does happen, are you are you talking about the idea? Or you mentioned you don't draw. Do you ever sketch to try to show something to someone, or you're actually building prototypes to try to show people what it would look like for real? I try to avoid making things without real data because the real yeah. data can be can look very differently from from mock-up data. Um, but I do sometimes just sketch things on a whiteboard or on paper to to explain how a certain visualization works or what it could look like. Um, but um, yeah, I I I prefer sketching with the real data um, with code over doing it on yeah. paper. Sketching with code, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> So you've talked about the tools that you use from going from data to the final product, but what's the thought process? What's the process that goes into that? Do you have a standard way that you're approaching how you work through projects or is it different each time? Yeah, it differs a lot. Um, it depends on the client. It depends on the data. It depends on the time frame. It depends on the kind of product that they expect. Um, but I try to keep the end user uh, in focus. Always think about what they are going to see and, and what kind of information they need. Um, and I think that's a very healthy approach uh, because if it doesn't work for the end user, well, then there's not really much sense in, in building your visualization. Um, so that's something that I always try to do, keep the, the end user in mind. And do you, when you're keeping the end user in mind, are you are you ever talking to the end users, or it's through the client interactions that you get that perspective? Usually, it's through the client. Um, and in on yeah, many projects, there isn't the time or the resources to really do interviews. Um, then, yeah, you can only do that for the very big projects. Um, but I have done some interviews, and and that's always. Very, very valuable. You learn things there that you cannot learn by just asking the client. 
We have a question from Robert who's asking, besides one-off data visualization creation, do you see a trend for long-term consulting and advisory work in relation to client projects or programs? Um, I think there is some trend there, um, especially um, in, in government agencies. I see that there's a realization of um, we have a lot of data and we don't have the skills to do anything with it. We we make uh, um, papers and we, we make reports, but uh, we know we, we can do better. Um, so a lot of government agencies are in this position and they are kind of open to this kind of um, relationship where they have a consultant that they can bring in once in a while to have a look at their visualizations, to have a look at the, the processes of how these visualizations are made. Um, and um, I actually have some of these longer standing relationships with uh, some customers that are more like um, on off where they contact me again after a year to do some other smaller things. Um, so that uh, definitely also helps. Uh, it's happening. Are there any projects that you're working on right now or that you're in the process of conceptualizing that you want to share with us? Yeah, so I'm um, working with the World Bank on their Sustainable Development Goals Atlas. Um, and, and this will be published, um, I don't know, maybe in a month or so, I'm not sure. Um, these are 17 articles because there are 17 Sustainable Development Goals and they are all data-driven with a lot of visualizations, um, a lot of um, interactive things and animations. So it's really um, online native um and yeah is this I'm their first time doing something like this yes um so it's something new for them um and that's also where i'm working in a small team of um, me and two others we are doing the development of these stories and, and doing the visualizations and it's a lot of fun because we're working with experts uh, in the field so they bring in data that is fresh from research. Um, so really interesting work. I'm very looking forward to publishing these stories. And is that something that will be publicly available once it's published? Yes, yes. Oh, fantastic. Where do you get your inspiration from? Where do you look in, in the world or online to, to get ideas when it comes to either new projects to try or, or new methods to employ? That must be almost exclusively Twitter. Um, oh, interesting. I, yeah, I follow a lot of people, a lot of what I think are interesting people, obviously. Um, so I'm following the big, bigger newsrooms and the, the visual teams that are making the visual stories. Um, I've mentioned what are some this, of your favorites when it comes to the newsrooms? Um, yeah, the ones I mentioned, NYT Graphics, uh, Washington Post Graphics, um, the people at Financial Times have been doing incredible work uh, during the pandemic. Um, 538 is there as well. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of these bigger newsrooms in Europe because we all speak different languages, uh, which is uh, kind of a pity. Um, but yeah, you have some German newsrooms as well who are doing uh, very nice things, Die Zeit and, um, and Berliner Morgenpost and, and mm -hmm. um, other newsrooms there. Um, but yeah, my, my source of inspiration is definitely Twitter. 
So interesting, right? Something that didn't exist so recently uh, now fuels so many things. Yeah, I think I can easily say that without Twitter, I might not even be a freelancer. Um, it was mm. very important for me to get into the field, getting picked up by some bigger names. Um, it's, yeah, I have a lot to thank to Twitter. So this has been super fun. I want to be conscious of your time, though. The, the hour has flown by for me. I know it's getting late uh, where you are in Belgium. Uh, so shift things into wrapping up here. Okay. Before we do, are there any upcoming events that you'd like to mention? Yeah, so for the people interested in xenographics, I think uh, this weekend uh, IEEE VIS 2020 is starting. And um, because of the pandemic, uh, they also shifted to online. And uh, actually, it's now free to attend. So anyone can uh, attend the conference. It's quite big. It has a lot of different sections. So um, it's probably a bit overwhelming. But they also try to reach um, practitioners since a couple of years. They try to um, bring the research field in, in contact with uh, practitioners. Um, so I would definitely recommend checking out uh, the program of uh, the IEEE VIS conference um, because for the first time it's it's free. It used to be very expensive uh, to go to. Um, so that's one thing I could recommend. And the other one is a smaller conference at the end of November. It's called SHOW. Um, it was planned to be held in Utrecht in the Netherlands. Um, but now also moved online and um, it has a very nice uh, set of speakers. So um, I'm also looking forward to uh, the show conference. Great. We'll make sure I see uh, folks asking about getting links to the conferences. We'll make sure that we put those in the show notes and I'll also grab all of the resources that you've talked about and the links for those and uh, email those out to folks who are joining here today too, so that you'll have that. Oh, and I see some people putting in the links. So that's awesome. Thanks, Marian. Uh, Martin, where can people follow your work? Uh, on Twitter. <laughs> I thought that might be the answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm also on LinkedIn, but I, I don't post anything there. It's um, all Twitter for me. Um, I update my website once in a while. Um, uh, not very frequently, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that's, it's Twitter for me. Yeah, well, and I can attest because I've been digging around on your website for the past several evenings and there's a ton of fun stuff there. So for mm -hmm. folks who are looking to explore more of Martin's work, you can do that at martinlambrix.com and we'll make sure to include that as well. Martin, any final thoughts to share with folks today? Yeah, just remember not to be afraid of uh, weird charts and also not be afraid of putting weird charts in front of people's eyes if you know they work. Uh, I think that's uh, the main lesson. Awesome. I love it. And as we talked about, there are things to learn from all of them and yeah, continually exploring and trying new things and working to increase the graphical literacy of those around us will just help continue to elevate the field. So Martin, thank you very much for joining us. It's been great fun to talk with you today. Yeah, thank you too for having me. It was uh, indeed a lot of fun. Awesome. And to those who are watching or listening, thanks very much for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Okay, bye.